welcome to the Social X Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and across sitting from me in another couch is Dr. Mim Fox. Hello. Hi Liz. How are you Mim? I'm good. I'm very good. It is a different couch we're on today. We are. Yeah. We are but you know we've just kind of adjusting well and moving around and there's nothing you and I we're very flexible people the only thing that's different is that we've got a microphone in our hand and not a teacup that's true that's very true or a beer or a beer so let's go straight to business okay we're back in the hospital setting back on the clinical floor it's where you and I are comfortable it is it is and I I feel like um that we'll need a few episodes soon that take us outside of the, the space that you and I are very familiar in. But let's just stay with this one because we've both worked in intensive care and palliative care, but I've never worked in paediatric um, palliative care, which is where this social worker is working in. So I worked in a paediatric community uh, complex illness. I worked in paediatric HIV and Whoa. which is pretty different to this environment that this social worker's in. She's a palliative care social worker in an acute hospital. That's right. And so maybe we should warn people that again it is about working with a family whose child's at the end stage of his her life and I say his her because you will hear that, listeners. Sometimes a social worker might refer to the patient as a his or a her or a they, and that's because she's being very careful to de-identify the child. But one of the things that we started to do in our last episode was ask our listeners to listen for a few things that we will come back to in our conversation. Yeah. So, Mim, are there any things that you would like the listeners to listen out for when they uh, listen to our interviewee. Look, this social worker, I think, is really skilled at stepping us through the practice of working in a family unit. So I think looking out for the question of who is the client might be uppermost in people's minds. I also want, because bereavement is such a comfortable place for both you and I, Liz, in the practice sphere, I do want people to think about where does bereavement sit in our priorities in social work? Where does it sit in our understanding of humanity or humankind and how we relate to people in times of need? I think that might be a really interesting point for people to hear for. Wow, okay. That's that's big picture stuff. Yeah, well, I'm, the, I'm always big picture. You are indeed. And just reducing it somewhat, I think the issue of bereavement is really interesting in this therapeutic intervention yeah as well yeah so when does a bereavement work start oh that's an excellent question when does it start when does it stop yeah what is that flow and location of bereavement support that happens in the life of a family unit and given that it is around the death of a child yeah does that bereavement support stop once the child has passed away and the family are no longer clients. Yeah. So that, yes, so you will li- you will hear how, how this social worker works in that space. And I think the other thing that I found really useful was the use of metaphors in her work. 
and the languaging. So you and I often talk about how important it is for social workers to practice the language of these um, conversations. And she spends a lot of time talking about the languaging and using um, certain techniques with the parents in working with within the family unit. Look, Liz, just before we listen to the social worker's story, um, just to point out that you said that the social worker flips back and forth with gender and sometimes refers to he or she or they. And just to say that the social worker, some some people have asked us, what do we do about de-identifying the stories on our podcast? What's our practice around that? And just to let our listeners know that the reason the social worker is doing that is because they are actively de-identifying the family that they're talking about. There's a number of other ways the social worker has done that, which we won't go into detail about, but this is just something our listeners might pick up on, which I think it's important for them to know that we really do put a lot of care and consideration into de-identifying our stories. Yeah. 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 So let's listen to our social worker and come back. Sounds good. I met with mum and dad and they themselves were coming to terms that their the the patient was not going to survive and their main worries that came up was around the patient's sibling and how to support her um, through this process of having her the patient die. So um, this question comes up a lot around how do you talk to siblings about death and dying because we know as, as parents all they want to do is protect protect their, their, their children from hurt and worry. So initially it was about um, really exploring with mum and dad around why it's important to communicate um, that their brother was going to die. Um, and that although they were only about five years old, why it was still important to provide that information. So what I initially did was explored with mum and dad about what's the what's their understanding of death and dying and what the, the five-year-old sibling's understanding of death and dying was. So for them, that they they had had in the last year a recent loss so there was a little bit of an understanding um, and their their way of explaining it was around the concept of heaven so I took that concept on board and um, I introduced a storybook to mum and dad called The Invisible String by Patrice Cast and that I think for me sometimes having something tangible helps with kids and explaining things so we spoke this book talks about it's a great book it talks about um there's always an invisible string wherever you are in the world that you're always linked to each other so it's a kind of a form of attachment but also helps to explain when someone's not there anymore there's always that invisible string so mum and dad really liked this concept and took the book and started reading reading to the brother Um, of the patient and that's how we began introducing the process. Um, Then what we did was um, mum and dad were going to bring the sibling in and they were really, they were worried themselves about how how do they say themselves that, that 
that their siblings going to die. So what we did is we, we kind of did a role play and then I said that I would support mum and dad and we talked about how the patient was really um, sick. Their, their um, lungs and heart were not pumping like our lungs and heart and that currently the machines were helping them. But once the machines... Once the machines were taken away, then um, the heart and lungs would stop working and they would go to heaven. And we reiterated the point of, but they would still forever be connected to their invisible string. So I also, before speaking with the sibling, I kind of also prepared mum and dad around some reactions that the that the sibling may have especially that in my experience they can be very frank and very honest and um, real in their questions around I've had families where they say but does that mean he's dead and what does that mean and so I think um, this can often I've seen the reactions of parents in terms of it's very frank questions so I tried to prepare them for that as well so um, when I met with the sibling, we sat down together and so I knew what a little bit of prep would, was done, but mum and dad were still very worried and wanted more support to me. So sat down with them and I introduced myself and role. They were very chatty and I started by talking about their sibling who was unwell and kind of explored what their understanding was and they knew that, that uh, the patient was very sick um and very outright said and and once the machines come off we don't know if if she if he's going to be with us or if he's going to go to heaven and so that was very frank so then i i kind of explored with them further about what does heaven mean and 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 this little person had a very good understanding of knowing that they they won't be with here with us and and they did use that concept of the invisible string and saying but we will always be connected um we then spoke about um they did have a bit of a fear of them going to heaven so um with mum and dad present and I always like to make sure they're present we we explored that a bit further and we spoke about how their heart and their lungs are very healthy at the moment um, and they're very strong so so they won't be going to heaven at the moment and um, she was able to say yes I want I want to be able to be big and um, be, I need to be able to grow bigger and stronger and and then she used her imagination and was able to say that um, when when they do go to heaven that she's going to have um wings and go with her wings to heaven to meet her sibling so i think um the the parents were in the room for that conversation so they felt actually at ease following that that um the sibling in themselves had their own understanding and um, while the patient was in hospital, we know the importance of that continuing bonds and support um, and connection after a person is deceased. So we began that um, 
creating those memories and those moments and um, with the use of, of um, hand and footprints and memory boxes we were able to develop that further connection that um, it was also something that the sibling could physically take home with her at the end and uh, this patient she did did pass away um, and the sibling was able to kiss her goodbye and he did following that did become a bit withdrawn and um, was scared to go to sleep because she was worried that um, the patient looked like um, they were sleeping so it was that more education with mum and dad about that reassurance that he's not sleeping, his heart has stopped and we were able to have another conversation with the sibling by saying that that they're not sleeping and it's okay to go to sleep and um, really just that education around words and concepts about how a five-year-old child thinks, yeah think it's about just using really basic language and not using medicalized language and talking about the heart stopping and um, I think that the machines not not working anymore I've often had kids ask if the machines can come home with them and so it's about explaining why the machines can't come home with them and I think it's also about saying that they're allowed to be sad and angry and scared and giving the child permission as well as giving the parents permission to be emotional in front of their child and um, giving them permission to tell the child that they're sad because they're missing that loved one. Um, it's going where the family are at in terms of that's why I always try and have a conversation with the parents or sometimes the parents can be so overwhelmed with their grief it's it's not always a parent it might be another relative in terms of it's Im important to understand what the family's culture is um, what their family's belief system in terms of death and dying so yes this family had a concept of heaven but other families I've worked with they don't have a concept of heaven and it, it might just be that they're up in the sky and we just that's the way that they want to put it to their children so that's what we use and it might be then the concept that they're the stars in the sky so I think it's really important about not introducing brand new things that the families that don't go with the family's belief system. I've had a lot of parents say that that they don't even want to want to bring the siblings into the hospital. They want to protect them and not tell them that that their the the patient is sick for the sibling or unwell. And um, it's really about breaking that down and exploring with them about what their worries are. And it and it is often that they just they don't they want to protect them and they don't want their they don't want their kids to feel that grief and it's really just breaking it down and sometimes using that evidence-based research that we have of explaining 
why we do these things and holding their parents' hands in supporting them do it because they're not meant to know how to how to talk to a, a five-year-old about death and that's why it's really being able to be their support person in talking to them. I think we do always try and push for siblings to be involved because we we know with open communication it supports them kind of in the long run. Um, I think we, we do have to go where the family are at and in I think I would say about 90% of the cases that I've worked with um, parents will take that on board. They initially have reservations but then will take that on board and really get involved. Like I've had big families come in where there is a child who's dying and all the siblings and the family they do like memory making as a family in terms of big canvases and all putting their handprints on and yes it's a very sad and overwhelming and distressing time but in my conversations with families after the child has deceased they're grateful that they were pushed a bit to have the whole family present and with them at that time. Liz, I think in this story that the social worker has shared, the penultimate question is who is the client? You've got the social worker working with a patient who is dying, actively dying. You've got parents of that child and then you've got a sibling as well. And the social worker is in many ways bouncing between these different people. Is it is it as simple as being able to pin down who is the client? What do you think? No, I don't think it is. I think she comes from a very family-centric model. Yeah. And I think it is dependent on need at the time. She's always coming between. back to looking at the need of the person she's working with, isn't yes. she? Yes. She really But within the herself. context of the family, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So who was the client in this scenario? Is it sibling? Is it parent? It definitely flips between, doesn't it? So there is one moment where she specifically talks about the languaging that she's using to support the parents to talk to the sibling and then the sibling to talk back with the parents, mm. right? In order to create an emotionally safe space between them. Mm. Yeah, so it does actually flip quite a lot through the story. And in using the parents as a conduit, it's also therapeutic for them as well. So mm. as they're working with their child, they're able to be working through their own grief yeah. and preparing themselves, but also knowing that they're needing to support this child through the death of the or the dying process of, of their sibling. That's right. You remember back in episode one, we talked about the social worker. I know it was a little while ago now, but we talked about the social worker needing to have a long-term vision when it comes to grief. Yes. That actually there is the presentation of the person or the family in front of them, but it's the social worker who has in mind down the road of grief, what is this person going to need? What's going to help them in their ongoing grief? Yeah. And I think this story really demonstrates a social worker having that long-term vision. Yes. And she would have been thinking about this the moment she met 
the patient. Yeah. So yeah. this child gets a diagnosis of a life-limiting illness. Yes. She would have been thinking about this from the word go. And so getting back to working with the parents in the way that she did mm-hmm. um, and in relation to the sibling, that long-term vision was around things like how are we going to support this child to adjust to their siblings dying so that problems do not emerge as a result. Things that we know that, you know, children who have misunderstood death with sleeping, the language that was used around the time of the death about, um, you know, little Johnny's gone to sleep now. and. Yes. Uh, Picking those words so carefully. Sleep disturbances occurring as a result. Things that you wouldn't know as a parent because, again, this is one of these highly unnatural events in a parent's life where you're having to think through explaining the death of my child in a way that my other child will understand so that their grief is going to be able to play out in a healthier way. You know, it would be really easy to think to yourself, oh, come on, this isn't going to have an impact on this person as an adult. Because they're only five. Oh, they're only five. But I tell you, literally the other day, someone reminded me that they were not allowed to go to see their grandfather when they were dying. Now, this is a person in their late 40s saying this to me, Liz. Mm. So this is real, what we're talking about here. This actually plays out for people, doesn't it? So this is, again, my... um admiration for the profession right yes so we know that Mm. that's what can happen so we know that um, if children are not included in this process then they don't get to grieve in the way that they need to right yeah and it's that notion of continuing bonds isn't it that actually the bond that that sibling has with their sibling through the dying process that is a bond that's going to continue and the parents actually working with that sibling in an ongoing way far beyond the social work intervention i liked that that point that um the social worker raises about even if that child is is doesn't have much of a memory growing Mm. up of this event that even knowing, having people say, you were there, yes. you were you were part of the, you know, you used to go and visit your sister every every evening or you were, um, you were there at the funeral yeah. to, to also help them with the memory of that too. I've never heard that before, but it's a really good point. The other model that I think is really useful for our students to think about when they listen to this is Doka's work on disenfranchised grief. Yes. And that often children were identified as having disenfranchised grief because they weren't allowed to do the grieving, um, you know, say several years ago. We're getting much better at it. And this social work is social workers talking about how she works with her, the parents. Yeah. Let's get back to that and around how she used and listened to the parents to get a sense of some of the ways in which she was going to talk about death and dying with the five-year-old yeah 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 because it didn't come from her place of expertise I mean there was that there but she had to find out from the family 
what their understanding and what their beliefs were around the death and dying process. It was that notion of tapping into the family unit culture. Yes. Right? So actually coming to them and saying, hearing how they're talking about the grief that they're experiencing and the dying process that they're watching and being a part of, and then using that language in a supportive way. Yes. Yeah? So she didn't go in there and say, let's talk about heaven. She heard that they were already using the language of heaven and then used that to work with the child, with the sibling, in an understanding of what was happening to their sibling, right? Yeah, that was great. And also the way in which she used factual, age-appropriate language around things like the life support machine. Yes, yes. And what that was doing and what was happening to the, the, the dying child's body yeah. Um, and that delineation would have helped with that concept of how death is different to sleep. Yeah. I thought that was really useful. And Mim, the use of story was um, really lovely too. Oh, the story book. to the Invisible String. Um, By Patrice Cast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was gorgeous, wasn't it? And actually you finding a book that was really appropriate for the five-year-old sibling so that they could actually take that in their relationship with the parents around this massive life event that's happened in this family. They actually have a supportive structure moving forward. And books can be so helpful with children in some of that really complex understanding. That was really beautiful. I also liked how... Um, the social worker role played with the parents how to talk with their child and I don't know that we've actually seen a social worker demonstrate that yet on our podcast I think this is the first yeah and I think that's actually something social workers do quite a lot of is teaching through modeling yeah so sometimes it's really formally done uh, by saying let's play out that conversation now together but sometimes it's actually a little bit um more subtle as well by just demonstrating language and ways of communicating in an open manner because um, again this wouldn't be a conversation that most people ever have yeah and yeah kind of want to get it right yeah in some regards there's a responsibility to to this isn't it it makes total sense that to practice talking about this with your five-year-old in the safe space with your social worker that can give you some feedback or maybe you'd like to say it like this or other families have said it's helped to say it like this. Perfect. Yeah. It's a perfect opportunity for psychoeducation, isn't it? Yeah. This entire space is. The other element to the psychoeducation was giving the the parents permission to grieve in front of their child. Yeah. Because often that will be where they will take their role modelling from. And that could be really useful for many parents who would think that maybe I should be doing this behind closed doors. I don't want to upset my child anymore. Yeah, that's right. If she was here now, I'd love to ask her the question of, are there times when you would suggest to be taking some of your, um, your reaction behind closed doors yeah is there a limit to openness yeah I wonder that as well I wonder is it the age of the child that makes a difference is it the traumatic nature of what's happening within the death there are so many variables that can actually happen right Mm. so how much preparation has the family had up until this point I think all of these questions really then impact the social work intervention that happens right that's right so 
it's, it's that idea that the social worker has to be responsive to the individual needs of the family at that time. Mm. There's no there's no prescription when it comes to bereavement support, So nuanced, actually. isn't it? So nuanced. I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I think, that, I think that's actually the way to say it. Mm. And, you know, Min, that point that you raised about the bereavement support um, and the ability of the social worker to be able to look into the future. One of the things that struck me uh, that was really useful was to be talking to the family about what it's going to be like to leave the bubble of the hospital and to go home to a home that no longer has that child in it and what's that going to be like. Just heartbreaking, right? Mm. For that family to have gone through this process and then to have to leave that acute environment of the hospital and come home to the silence that would be that house, right? Heartbreaking. So for the social worker to actually be able to start doing some preparation with the family before that happens, I think that's really vital work there. Mm. That's, That's really strong work. I liked the idea that there was going to be ongoing support for this family yeah. because I would imagine that they've had a, a relationship with this social worker for quite some time, or the service, I should say, because it probably wouldn't have been that social worker that would have provided ongoing bereavement support, but that that was provided for. And I just reflect on the fact that we do it better for certain um groups of people like for children and ongoing bereavement support for parents and families I think we do that better in Australia than for say some you know um, bereavement support for people who've lost their um, you know partner of 60 years or you know the generic death Liz we do badly yep Absolutely. That being said, I do think palliative care has a space for that ongoing bereavement support. I worked in a community palliative care team where I ran uh, training workshops for community members who wanted to know more about how to support their loved ones and um, did a lot of one-on-one bereavement support and family support. So I think there's space where this happens well. But what we know about palliative care definitely in Australia is that it was came from oncology. It came from cancer care. It's only in recent times that it's expanded. So we're not there yet at understanding the lessons that palliative care have taught us around a good death. Mm. What does a good death mean? What does that look like for the average person in Western society? We actually aren't there in our understanding. So I think I think what this social worker showed us was a really interesting way and a really uh, important way of how to demonstrate that bereavement support with children. What I would like to see social work taking on is how to now take those lessons to a broader space. Well, so I'm getting the milk crate out now. Oh, I'm right there with you, Liz. One of my concerns around that is that, you know, on on a social level, we farm dying and death out. You know, two generations ago, my family would have been looking after the the dying person at home, and also the the um, they would have been had spent time with the dead person. We farmed that out, yeah. right? Yeah. But there's a parallel process, I believe, that's going on in our profession, in terms of loss and grief not being taught enough in the undergraduate course. So we are getting students who are graduating with not having much exposure at all 
to models of loss and grief. Look, Liz, we should tell our listeners that before we actually started recording this episode, we had a conversation as a podcast team. How much grief and loss education did we all get within our social work training? It ranged from one article in the entire degree Mm. to two hours, three hours. You were saying that in a non-university setting, you received more. No, I taught it. So oh, you in taught a non-university it. setting, so in our welfare course yes, at TAFE, yes. I taught a course that was four hours a week, 16 weeks of loss and grief. So for our international listeners, that's not social work training. That's welfare training, Yes. right? It's actually a a different sort of training to be receiving. We're doing worse in our social work education now than what you experienced at that point. Like, I, th- I really think as a profession, this is something that we have to come back to. I think there's a fear around some of the spirituality aspects. Right. And when this social worker was talking about spirituality and understanding the culture of the family she was working with and using those metaphors of heaven, I did wonder to myself how many social workers feel comfortable when uh, the family that they're working with start to talk about spiritual issues. I remember working in palliative care and having uh, some of my patients ask me, and it was quite regularly, ask me whether I believe in God. Yeah. Now, it's a difficult question to get as a practitioner and it's difficult whether you have that spiritual or religious basis and it's difficult if you don't. Like it's actually, we've talked quite a lot on this podcast about the difficult nuanced space of boundaries and I think this is one of those areas of social work practice that we actually do find quite tricky in our modern secular space. And yet, look it is because there's so much work being done in this space that students and, and social workers would benefit from. Oh. So I wouldn't mind a dollar for every time I have clinicians come to me and say, this student has no concept of loss and grief and yet that's what we're working in. Is that my responsibility to be teaching them about different models of loss and grief? Where is the responsibility sitting? And I think in social work education, we really have dropped that ball in many ways. I also think there's potentially some listeners saying but I don't do grief and loss or I don't surely grief and loss isn't in every aspect of social work practice surely it's just in the hospitals where people are dying surely it's just in specialized groups or communities and I want to make the statement Liz that that's absolutely untrue Mm. that grief and loss is in every single element of social work practice and once we as a profession can start to get more comfortable with this and actually start to train our students going through appropriately, we can actually start to own that space a little bit more. I think we've got work to do in this area. Absolutely. And I know that you and I together will be doing that work, Liz, which is great. So let's get off the milk box, the milk crate Such a comfortable place to be, Liz. I mean, before we finish up, I just wanted to welcome Katie, our new social work student who will be working closely with us, already is, on the Social Work Stories podcast. Welcome, Katie. We love having Social Work students come and work on our podcast with us, don't we? It's brilliant. And and as the time goes on, Katie, we'll put the microphone in front of you and you can say hello, but not your first time. So. Not the first time. Hey, before we do finish up, that that was really cathartic to have that discussion about what's the 
gap that's happening in social work education with grief and loss. And I'm just wondering whether, because we do have a lot of listeners from other countries, there's over 90 countries listening to us now, Liz, which is bizarre. But I'm just wondering what do other people do? Are they doing it better somewhere else? Yeah. So if there is a listener out there who is thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. We do this amazingly in wherever it is Illinois. you're from. Illinois. Or whatever space you're from. Then Nottingham. Nottingham. Keep keep naming the cities. Uh, then come on, get on Twitter and let us know because we really do want to know. Talking about Twitter, people should get in touch with us, Liz, just generally speaking. At SOWK Stories Pod. That's our Twitter and Instagram handle. So get onto that, people, and get in touch. The other thing is our website, it's up and running, uh, socialworkstories.com. We'd love people to get in touch with us through that or send us an email, socialworkstoriespodcast at gmail.com. So many ways, Liz. No excuses to not. At all. At At all. There is another way too, Mim, that people can communicate with us and that is to write a review on the Apple Podcast app. Can I just say that always blows my mind that people take that time to do that? I know, I know. Just sharing with us their thoughts but also where they're at in their career or and in fact in saying that there's one that we want to share Justin's going to give us a, what are you going to do? Um, There's a review that we received recently that I want to read out because it was really exciting for our whole team to uh, to receive and we were just so encouraged and inspired by it. So this is from Branda in Illinois. She says, I came across this podcast and I became addicted. It has actually helped me decide what I want to go into after I graduate. After hearing the story about the woman working with parents who have lost an infant, I felt different. It seems morbid, but I knew I needed to work in that field. Something about the idea of being the advocate for those parents was intriguing to me. You have to be the voice for those who may not be strong enough in that moment. Today I was signing up for my spring semester classes, and I mentioned my new job interest to my advisor, who is also a social worker. I don't know if it's fate, but he got an email earlier in the week from a woman. This woman works in the OBGYN department at our local hospital as a social worker. She was emailing him to ask if any of the students would be willing to intern there. It was meant to be. Thank you guys so much for leading to my future career. I have also shared your podcast with all of my classmates. All the way from Peoria, Illinois, Branda. Thank you so much, Brenda. We really enjoyed hearing from you, and uh, we're so excited for your career and for these excellent puzzle pieces that are coming into place for you. That's really wonderful. And again, if you do want to share with us your story, your experience, please do leave a podcast review on the Apple uh, Podcast app or get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, send us an email. We're all ears. Thank you so much, Justin, for reading that out and for Brenda for sending that in. It's so exciting, Liz, that people are hearing our podcast, but actually also that it's got meaning for them at different times in their lives. I think it's fantastic. We're growing the profession, which is fabulous. Fortnight by fortnight. Fortnight by fortnight. That's exactly right. It's the slow the slow burn. The Liz. slow burn. And let's slowly burn for another two weeks and we'll come back and share another story. Love it. 
Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you, Katie, our new social work student. Thank you to Justin Stesh and Ben Joseph, our producers on the podcast. Have a good fortnight, everyone. Relax and take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.